This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we're asking the question, what role can supervisors play in addressing microaggressions? Later in the episode, we'll hear a personal story from a bilingual SLP in California. But first, I'm joined by Kiyomi Gregory-Martin and Nancy Govin. And although both guests are SLPs working at universities, I think you'll find what they share is broadly applicable and has value for both supervisees and supervisors. Whether you're an audiologist or an SLP, whether you're a clinical fellow or a graduate student, or an audiology or speech language pathology assistant. Nancy is Associate Dean of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Engagement, and an Assistant Professor in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. As a returning guest, Kiyomi is an associate professor at Pace University. You may recall hearing her discuss dialects in the classroom on this podcast in 2022. And you may have seen Nancy and Kiyomi present on cultural awareness, bias, and microaggressions in the supervisory relationship at the 2023 ASHA convention. Together on the podcast, they talk about creating inclusive workplace cultures and what to do if you unintentionally commit a microaggression. To begin the conversation, I ask the guests to explain what microaggressions are. During their presentations or when speaking with someone unfamiliar with the term, what do they say? Nancy speaks first. We try to explain them in like as in layman's terms as as easy as and as gently as possible because we want to be cognizant of the audience we're speaking to and also cognizant of what that what the word means. But in essence, what we share is that there are everyday slights and insults and any type of indignities that people are unaware that they're giving. So there could be a veiled compliment. Think The person thinks that they're giving a compliment, but it's actually an insult. An example would be something like, oh, you're so articulate saying that to a, a black person or an African-American person is actually, it's thought to be a compliment, but, but really is an insult because it implies that we're not supposed to be articulate or that's a nuanced thing, or you're the exception, not the rule. So we talk about what those microaggressions are, different examples, what they can be hostile, derogatory, and it's typically a negative attitude towards a marginalized group. So we share that information and then we go into the different types of microaggression. Something I think about is the term death by a thousand cuts. When I think about microaggressions, because it's something that it adds up, it accumulates. And sometimes people forget how that has an impact on a person on a daily basis, because even the word micro makes it seem like it's minor. Some people in the research don't like that term. They prefer the term macroaggressions because all of it is major. So thinking about it like that and just really considering the fact that if you were to get a thousand paper cuts, it would really hurt and it would really be painful over time. So not to minimize it. You're both SLPs and microaggressions aren't limited to specific settings or professions, of course, but think of the work SLPs do. Speech and language are closely linked to identity and culture. And I'm wondering if that changes the relevance of this conversation that we're having today and if it influences how you talk about microaggressions with your colleagues. Absolutely. I mean, something that I think about a lot is linguicism and language discrimination and how that sits in our profession. 
And that's an ism and microaggression that oftentimes people don't always think about instantly. But the fact that we are language experts, if we marginalize certain dialects or language languages, that says a lot about how we view language and maybe being something we need to fix. And that really shouldn't be our primary goal is to have someone, I guess, use general American English. The only reason we should be actually seeing a client is if there is actually a language disorder or speech sound disorder in the respective dialect or language that they're speaking. And the same goes when we think about working with supervisee, right? You know, if they're experiencing microaggressions around maybe the language that they speak or the accent that they have, that may be something that they may not want to continue in our profession if they're experiencing that. Kiyomi, when you were on the podcast before, you discussed the importance of knowing the community one is working in and shared how unconscious bias is toward dialect variations can affect services. You said, quote, if you feel certain ways about various dialect variations, whether you think they're prestigious or they have a stigma, these attitudes may carry into how you provide assessment and treatment without you even being conscious about it, end quote. And I have to think this is true for supervision, too. Absolutely. Um, when you think about the supervisory process, supervisees are very vulnerable, right? And we have that power differential between the supervisor and the supervisee. So everything that you say really has a lasting impact on that individual. So we have to be cognizant of how microaggressions play a role in that. Yeah, I definitely agree. Microaggressions and implicit bias specifically are involved in all in, in all things that in how we interact with people in our profession, in how we relate to our clients, in how our students relate to us and vice versa. So um, because of that, I think the information that we've gathered over time and understanding what implicit bias is and how it lends itself to discriminating in some ways on how we assess and discriminating on what we consider to be a disorder or a dialect or difference plays a, a large part. And I think for those reasons, we're looking at assessment tools and how they're standardized. We're looking at how therapy is conducted to make sure that it's equitable and inclusive and not discriminatory in there and, and looking at it from the lens of is there implicit bias in this assessment tool? Is there implicit bias in this therapy approach? And what is the evidence saying? And it's adding a better layer of understanding in what we are doing and how we, we relate to our clients and how our clients relate to us and how our students and all the dynamics in, in, in our field of study. Thinking about supervision. I understand you recently presented together at the ASHA convention. In your presentation, you talk about the need for cross-cultural supervision. Tell me a little bit about cross-cultural supervision. What role does that play in the workplace and in speech-language pathology? Cross-cultural supervision is looking at how we relate to our supervisees or mentees that we work with from the supervisory lens and you know, preceptor or clinical instructor lens. Um, and also how this, how we're perceived by them. So I can speak to, and 
I think both Kiyomi and I could speak to being one of the few black uh, professors in a program working with students that don't look like us. So we've had firsthand experience with cross-cultural supervision. And also our life experience is very influenced by being the only one in the room. That's We're used to it. When we work with supervisees from different backgrounds or different cultures or different races, we are already looking at making sure that our super our students are comfortable, making sure that they acclimate well to the new school environment and clinical experience, and how that plays a part in how other supervisees who have minoritized or underrepresented groups as students, how that should be shaped. So cross-cultural supervision is putting that understanding into the supervisory process understanding that you're not going to know everything about your students' culture and experience, and that's okay. And to also know that it's something that you can use in building that relationship and rapport with that person. And how can that benefit their clinical experience and how it relates to their experiences? So cross-cultural supervision is, is an accented and heightened approach to how we supervise students and how students experience the supervisory experience. Our conversation turned briefly to demographics. According to 2022 data, 91% of ASHA members are white. And in our conversation, Nancy points out that men are in the minority in speech-language pathology. The percentage of members that self-identify as female, and this includes audiologists too, is more than 95%. Since we were having this conversation in the context of supervision and microaggressions, I asked our guests about the role of the supervisor in addressing microaggressions. Acknowledging that microaggressions are not always committed intentionally, what happens when a supervisor commits a microaggression? I mean, one thing I'm thinking about as a supervisor is remembering that even if a supervisee is the same race as you, there is no monolith in the sense that even if you as a supervisor are white and the student that you're working with is white does not mean that you share all of the same values in terms of culture. When thinking about culture, thinking about the iceberg and the idea that there are a lot of things you see on top, but there are a lot of things that are below the surface. I'm thinking about Kimberly Crenshaw's work in terms of intersectionality. You know, it could be gender expression differences. It could be race. It could be ethnicity. It could be socioeconomic status. It could be that you come from a family of an immigrant background. There are a lot of layers to that. So as a supervisor, you need to be cognizant of that. And part of that is asking questions. Even something as simple as asking, thinking about the universal design for learning, how does my student best learn? Because maybe I provide more auditory feedback to a student and they're a very visual learner. Knowing that in the beginning when you're supervising that student might allow you to maybe change or modify how you provide feedback. Maybe my feedback would be providing, I don't know, videos to accompany the examples of what I want my student to do rather than just auditorily presented feedback. So I think some of those things help in the process. And a bias could be as simple as, you know what, I'm an auditory learner. So this is how I'm going to present all feedback to you when I'm working with somebody who that's not how they best learn. 
So I think starting that relationship off by even asking simple questions about that makes a huge difference because that's bias too, even though people don't generally think about it as bias, but you may learn a certain way and expect others to learn in that same exact manner. Mm -hmm. Part of this sounds like then is learning to know yourself as well, right? Examining your own cultural background. That's key. That's key. That's definitely key. Yeah. Let's say a supervisor were to commit a microaggression and an employee lets them know, how should a supervisor respond in a situation like that? Uh, They might, you know, feel embarrassed or not want to accept that this happened because it was unintentional. Is there something that you might say that they should consider in a moment like that? I generally use the analogy of spinach in your teeth at the party. Uh, Yeah, she does. (laughs) I love using that. So let's just imagine you're at this party, you're having a really good time. Someone comes up to you and they're like, oh my gosh, you have spinach in your teeth from that spinach dip you ate at the party. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to say, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I was so unaware about that. And you're going to leave that party and go to the bathroom and take that spinach out of your teeth, right? That's going to require a little bit of work. Maybe you're a little embarrassed that you've been walking around that party for, I don't know, 10 minutes with spinach in your teeth talking to people and no one told you about it. But now that they've told you about it, you're going to go in the bathroom, you're going to take care of that spinach and you're going to come back to the party and you're going to enjoy yourself. Well, that is how we need to learn how to experience microaggression. So there's no good versus bad binary in the sense that if a microaggression happens that you're a bad person, I want us to not think about it like that. I want you to think about it like, oh my gosh, I had spinach in my teeth. I did something. I said something that was wrong, you know, impact versus intent. My intent was not to do that, but it had an impact on an individual. Now, what am I going to do about it? Right. And taking the spinach out of your teeth does not mean that the person you perform the microaggression on has to do the work for you. Like some people, times people will say to you like, oh my gosh, like I need to know more about racism. Could you give me some books? Now we all know Google's out there. We can all do some of the work. So I want you to also take the onus about you can get your floss too. And there are lots of resources. So get that floss and get going with what you have to do so that you don't do that again. So I want us to just experience that. If we experience it like brushing our teeth and getting spinach out of our teeth, it'll just make it feel like this is an everyday thing. And the fact is, everybody has experienced performing a microaggression. Mm -hmm. We've either been a perpetrator, a bystander, or a victim. Everyone has been in all three roles. So I think the more we get comfortable with that, the easier it is to work through these things. We're thinking about supervisors. And often there's a power dynamic at play. And, you know, I can imagine for the supervisee, an employee, a student, they may not want to confront their supervisor because that can be uncomfortable to confront someone that you report to in some way. Absolutely. Scary. It's it's actually, that's part of the reason why a lot of microaggressions continue to occur within supervisor-supervisee relationship. Because I do feel that many supervisees are very vulnerable because of the power differential. But there has to be a way in which 
you can share this information. And it may be something as simple as providing feedback. Students have to provide feedback to their supervisors towards the end. Maybe that's how a student might feel comfortable or by reporting it. I know the whole issue is feeling safe. So I think that that's a big issue that might come up for supervisees. I also think that it's also the supervisor's responsibility to allow that openness to happen throughout the supervisory process. So the supervisor should set up an opportunity for there to be conversations about what works and what's not working and how they supervise their students. If they establish a working, almost like a reciprocity of working together, what works for you, what works for me, I want you to come to me if there's a concern, let's the supervisee know that I can trust telling the supervisor how I'm feeling about X, Y, or Z. And also having the supervisor check their ego. I wanted to add to, you know, adding to the spinach in your teeth. You could sometimes have spinach in your teeth and need a mint. (laughs) So, because it leaves a residual effect, right? The spinach is one thing optically, but also the, the, how it leaves you. Because we all remember if, if someone doesn't have the best breath, that you will remember that olfactory memory of, ooh, that smelled bad. <laughs> so a mint might be needed, and that mint is checking your ego. And supervisors need to also be self-aware enough to know, hey, maybe just because I've had more experience doesn't mean I know everything. And if my student is telling me that what I said made them feel uncomfortable, I need to be able to hear them and be an active listener. This is often referred to as cultural humility, correct? Yeah, actually, I was going to just say that part of cultural humility is egolessness, which I love. And Nancy touched on that. Egolessness, leaving your ego at the door. Sometimes you receive feedback, but you might not be ready to receive it or prepared to receive it. But part of that humility responsiveness journey is to sometimes say, you know, I did not realize that what I said had an impact on you like that. That wasn't my intent, but I'm going to continue to do the work to do better. And that doesn't make you less of a professional or it shouldn't make you feel like you are not still in a leadership role because you made a mistake. People make mistakes every day, but it's what are you going to do about that mistake? Are you going to continue doing it or are you going to do something about it? Mm-hmm. Supervisors have different roles and they work directly with employees, but in some cases they're also responsible for workplace culture if they're in maybe an administrative position. And they may have to address microaggressions institutionally, right? So I would argue that you know we all have a responsibility to prevent microaggressions on a personal level, but people in supervisor roles may have the additional responsibility of creating culture that addresses microaggressions. And I'm wondering if if you had any thoughts on on that and, and what supervisors can do if they wanted to cultivate a culture that addresses microaggressions. Policy, thinking about the policies of your department and the policies within the clinic. I mean, every institution and department has a handbook. So are they thinking about maybe what are their policies around dress codes within the clinic? Those things may depending on what those policies look like, that may be perpetuating microaggressions. And when I say that, things around like hair, 
dress. That may be something that's cultural, that that's how a person presents uh, as a supervisee. And now there's a handbook saying, okay, this is what professionalism looks like. So I think we really have to address those things because that's the culture you create is through policy. And depending on the policy that you have, it may be exclusionary to certain groups. So you have to consider that. Also, the exposure to different cultures. Exposure is important as well. Like having representation within your department is useful and helpful. And having a department that's ready to have those tough conversations, making sure that there's faculty time to learn about these different, what implicit bias is, what microaggression is, cultural appropriation, all of those nuanced and needed understanding of terms and what that means for people and understanding that and having those conversations and not being complicit and, and talking to your faculty members and saying, hey, that's not appropriate for these reasons. So they learn from it. And if you have a department or a work environment where people can come to you and talk to you about these things, that makes a difference going forward. So I think that's also important too. Near the end of our conversation, I asked Kiyomi and Nancy if there was anything else they wanted to share. Kiyomi highlighted the way supervisors can provide feedback. She mentioned that supervisees can feel they're in a vulnerable place when receiving feedback. You might have to preface that information by saying, this is not about you. This is about the product and the work that you're doing. I want to help you improve that. So even thinking about that, because I've found in my experience and supervision that it could be really challenging for some supervisees to receive the feedback. And sometimes they think it's you being critical about them as a person when it's really about the experience that they're creating for the client. One thing that is also important too is keeping the patient or the person they're working with, their client as a focus, teaching your supervisees or working with your supervisee to understand that it's not you know, just to add to what Kiyomi said, it's not about them. It's about their clinical abilities and what is helping the client and what's not helping the client. Another thing is to remind supervisors or clinical instructors to, at the start, especially if you're building a foundation with your supervisee, to put yourself in their shoes or try to at the beginning. Just remember what that felt like for you when you were in, in those shoes. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. We all remember what that feels like. And to also have some grace in how you're speaking to your supervisor. Let them know the ground rules. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to speak with me today about this. And I know this can be a, an emotional topic. And I appreciate your openness in this conversation and your time. And I'm going to say thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking us to meet with you. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. Nancy says when sharing feedback with students, she would ask them about how they preferred to receive the feedback, opening the door to a conversation about what works best for them. She says, quote, if a student feels that you're invested in them, they'll be more apt to want to work with you to improve their clinical skills. Before we go, I want to bring you one more voice. Hello, my name is Ivan Campos. I'm a bilingual speech language pathologist. I have worked in various settings such as public schools, private practice, behavioral health, and now I work as a program specialist with Desert Mountain SELPA supporting various school districts with special ed needs. I first heard Yvonne speak as a part of the ASHA STEP 
Connect, Learn, Empower Speaker Series in 2022. Here he is speaking about recognizing microaggressions. I think one of the biggest things for me is to recognize, recognize it for what it is. And now once you recognize it, it's like a sucker punch. You're going to feel all tied up and emotional and even some physical pain sometimes depending on what it is or what's happening, right? I spoke with him in November. He told me microaggressions can trigger thoughts of current and past discrimination experiences. He grew up in the L.A. area. He says his parents immigrated from Mexico. And when he was young, his exposure to American culture was limited. When he went to college in the 90s, he says he remembers experiencing microaggressions and overt racism. I didn't really know how to handle it, but I knew something was not right. And my body was telling me something had happened. When he started taking CSD courses, he says he remembers comments being made about the way he spoke, about him being male. The biggest shift for me was self-identifying what microaggressions are, the feelings that came with being minimized, not being seen, being ridiculed because of some part or all of my identity or intersectionality were being, I guess, pointed out. And that shift in my self-awareness created also a newfound voice. And as a professional, I develop a voice in this area. Years later, in 2019, he joined ASH's Multicultural Issues Board, a group whose work centers on issues related to cultural and linguistic diversity and the professions. We came up with this idea to invite undergrad and grad students to write about their journeys on to becoming an SLP, on to becoming an audiologist. And so we started to recruit students to share their stories, and we realized that we were coming across a lot of things that were happening in undergrad and grad programs, and even to the students themselves, including racism and microaggressions. The Multicultural Issues Board collected data on student experiences. With more than 150 responses, nearly 65% of the students said they had experienced a microaggression. Some of the themes that emerged were descriptions of how the microaggressions made students feel othered, meaning that they don't feel part of. There were some damaging generalizations towards their culture, maltreatment from faculty, and also maltreatment from peers. Those responses ended up in the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology article titled Student Stories, Microaggressions, and Communication Sciences and Disorders. It was published in 2021. Find the link to that article and more information on the Multicultural Issues Board on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org podcast. While you're there, you'll find links to resources and information to support you in your work, including a compilation of podcast episodes relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. Listen to Kiyomi Gregory Martin discuss dialects in the classroom, or author Ijoma Aluo's episode of the podcast from 2020. That's all at on.ash.org slash podcast. Before we go, I want to share one more observation from Yvonne. Near the end of our conversation, I asked him, about what he's seen change since the summer of 2020, when DEI issues received increased awareness. He says he does think there's been progress in the area, but he says he's also seen microaggressions change as awareness has increased. There's been that shift that I have noticed, others have noticed in terms of how microaggressions have evolved to be even more subtle, more damaging in their own way, because now there's awareness of what they are, but yet they still continue. And I think, J.D., they continue because the consequences are not there.
Because how do you prove a microaggression when it doesn't fit one of those federal categories? How do you prove emotional, psychological, mental health? We'd like to hear from you. Have you seen microaggressions change in the past three years? How do you address them in the workplace or in the supervisory relationship? Let us know. Write an email to podcast at asha.org. Find additional resources addressing considerations in supervisory relationships online. We'll put a link to Ash's Supervision Hub on the blog post for this episode. Ash's Supervision Hub includes information for supervisors of grad students clinical fellows, and audiology and speech-language pathology assistants. This includes an archive of recorded conversations that cover various settings and telesupervision as well. Find the link on the blog post for this podcast at on.ash.org podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.